welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Ana Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Nevin Young, professor of plant biology and plant pathology at the University of Minnesota, St. Paul. Professor Young was part of an effort that gathered 124 authors from 31 institutions across eight different countries to sequence the genome of Medicago truncatula, a legume that is close to alfalfa and has long served as a lab rat for legume biology. Professor Young is also the leader of the Medicago HapMap project, a collaborative effort funded by the National Science Foundation between 11 universities and institutes in the US, France, Denmark, and Tunisia. Professor Young, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So you co-authored with Arvin Barty of the National Center for Genome Resources, an article that is appearing in the 2012 Annual Review of Plant Biology, and it's called Genome-Enabled Insights into Legume Biology. So let's talk a little about legumes a little bit. Could you introduce us to the ones that you work on? I'd be happy to. So legumes um, are the uh, second most important family of plants in, in human biology in, in, in agriculture. You know, cultures uh, throughout history have depended upon legumes, and so it's always been, uh, often been combinations of cereals and legumes that have led to modern civilizations. So we have a lot of, uh, scientists have a lot of interest in understanding the biology of legumes. The most important reason is because legumes are responsible for what we call biological nitrogen. So that's kind of a natural fertilizer that uh, enables plants to grow. And it's only legumes, they're the only agricultural crop that enables that to happen. The most, probably the best known legume, at least uh, to, the, you know, to non-scientists, are probably soybeans so that uh, there are hundreds of millions of acres of soybeans growing around the world. There are other important legumes, for example, uh, alfalfa and garden peas and uh, beans. Those are all different kinds of legumes. We study a particular legume called Metacago truncatula, and it's, it's closely related to alfalfa, but it's an interesting crop in its own right because it's been used as a model for looking at nitrogen fixation. Right. So nitrogen fixation, tell us a little bit more about this, because this is quite specific. There are uh, physical features that allow them to do that. Um, can you tell us more about it? Exactly, yes. So nitrogen fixation, um, the legume plants or legume plants can't do that by themselves. They need a partner, and their partner is a bacteria, soil bacteria, that's called rhizobium. Together, in the combination of legumes and, and rhizobial bacteria, they work together to uh, take atmospheric nitrogen, the nitrogen that's in the air, which is very inert. So it's not it, biological organisms, living things can't use atmospheric nitrogen directly. The only things that can are, are the bacteria that work with legumes. So they fix that nitrogen and they change it to a biologically active form. And that all takes place not in the air, but it actually takes place in the roots of the legumes. So the rhizobium, they form uh, an association with the roots of the legume plant and then together they fix this nitrogen. It's an example of symbiosis, and it's probably one of the best uh, characterized types of symbiosis in the world. So papillionoids are uh, the family of legumes that you study, and to get to nodulation, which is exactly what you just described, um, they had to go through quite an event um, that you define as gene duplication. So can you explain to us when this happened and why? What was happening on Earth when it did? Oh, sure, sure. 
so uh, before I, just before I say something about uh, uh, genome duplication, so when the bacteria, those rhizobial bacteria in the legume, they get together, they form something called a nodule. And that nodule is a specialized structure. It's only, it only exists in the roots of legumes. I mean, nitrogen-fixing nodules only exist at the, on the roots of legumes. And so there are special morphological and anatomical adaptations that need to, need to occur in order for these nodules to, to develop correctly. And so scientists have come to, to recognize that a specialized subset of genes and gene products need to be needed need to have evolved and need to be uh, induced in order to make nod nodulation occur. And so, the question we were asking was, where did those where did these novel genes come from? Right. That would make it possible to make no to make nodules. And uh, in order to in order to look for the genes um, now, that is in the year 2012. The best way to look for what genes are there and what they're doing is to is just to sequence the genome. Is to sequence all billion base pairs. In the case of metacogio, that metacogio, that's 450 million base pairs. So that's what our team of 124 124 co-authors and all these institutions we sequenced metacogio. And when we looked, we found that the genome there were duplicate copies of genes all over the genome. And the the best way that scientists can explain that is that all of the chromosomes of the of ancestral legumes must have duplicated and you can use a, a some relatively straightforward um, uh, mathematical test to calculate when that occurred and this traces back apparently to a to an event about 58 to 60 million years ago so we're talking 60 million years ago that's almost the time of the dinosaurs and in fact it's right at the time when the dinosaurs were, were becoming extinct, and, and it coincides with uh, some sort of cataclysmic event, which may have been a meteor hitting the planet, that you know, wiped out a, a significant fraction of all of the living species around the planet. And that cataclysmic event obviously ha had a big impact on the ancestors of legumes and the ancestors of other flowering plants today. And one of the th one of the outcomes of that event was that the ancestor of modern day legumes they duplicated all their genes and then they were starting with this uh, doubled set of genes that they could then use for different kinds of uh, biological uh, phenotype biological traits. So so it's adaptive. Um, in retrospect, we can look back at it and see that as an adaptive event. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that. Um, it can be an adaptive event. You know, genome duplication is often a lethal, and it's you know it, it causes you know instabilities because there's the wrong dosage of genes. But when it works, when it sticks, the progeny of those duplication, the the products of those duplications, of those genome duplications, um, they they have the potential to be more successful ecologically. What does that happen? Well, in fact, the you know the the review article in in the annual review and the and the article about the sequencing project that's really what that really is the question we were focusing on. So, what is the fate of all of those genes that got that would have been duplicated 58 million years ago? And the the observation that we made well, you can you can uh, sort of imagine different things could happen after you duplicate your genes because now you've got where you only needed one 
uh, gene to, to get a function done before, now you've got two. And so you've got like extra genetic uh, flexibility. So one possibility is that you just eliminate the extra gene. And in fact, that's what happens to a majority of the genes, and that's what happens to a majority of the genes that, that were duplicated in, in, in ancient legumes, these prehistoric legumes. Most of the genes that, were, um, that got duplicated also were eliminated uh, in, the, in the millions of years that came after it. But there's, there are other possibilities as well. And one of the possibility, one, one possibility is that when you, are, when you previously had one gene, now you had two genes, or you had two genes making different proteins, different gene products, those two genes could split up the function of the, what, what you had before. So they split into, they, they take a, some sort of complicated uh, process, and they split the work up between the two genes. And, and that's referred evolutionarily to the, by the term subfunctionalization. Now you could also imagine that now you've got two genes where you just had one before. One of the genes holds on to the old function, and a second gene acquires an entirely new function. And we call that neo-functionalization. These three different choices uh, after a duplication event. Lose them all together, create a new function, or split up the old function. So this, this particular process between genes that are, that are duplicated, how did this um, result in those um, features that legumes uh, display today? Well, we can't tell about all of the features, but, we can, but, we, but the co-authors and I were able to focus in on the development of nodulation and that symbiosis that occurs between rhizobia and, and, and legume plants. And what we found was that uh, um, over the last 10 years, uh, scientists around the world, including scientists not on the project, have discovered some of the key steps that are required for nodulation to occur. And so we know the names of those genes, and we know what their sequence is, and you know, they're sort of like sitting in a database. And then when we looked at those genes, and we compared them to uh, what, what they look like as a result of the genome duplication, what we found was that many of the, I mean, a significant number, multiple copies of those genes, multiple examples of those genes um, that, that are essential for present day, you know, modern nodulation and nitrogen fixation, that those genes were examples of this sub-functionalization event, so that before 58 million years ago, there was one gene busy doing all different kinds of symbiosis, not just nitrogen fixation, but interacting with fungi and, and being involved in acquiring other kinds of minerals from the soil. So, so sort of like a gene that was sort of uh, a real, that, it, that, that was sort of generalized for multiple different kinds of symbioses. And then there's this genome duplication event, and then the the, 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 the two copies of the gene that got created after, after that, one of them became specifically specialized for nodulation, and the other copy of the gene got specifically specialized for these other kinds of symbioses that are called mycorrhizal symbioses. So the one gene that used to do two different kinds of symbioses, now the progeny gene split up that function. So each one of the genes could become just better at it, more highly adaptive for that, for that particular phenotype. And in the in the lineage of one of those those beans that that um, occurred after after that event, um, something else happened to the ancestor of soybean. Um, can you tell That's us right. more about that? Yeah. So so 
very soon after to, after the uh, after the uh, cataclysmic event, the 58 million event, 58 million year old event, um, there was a lot of there was this diversification, the lineage that leads to things like clovers and 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 uh, alfalfa and peas and stuff like that. It went in one direction, and the lineage that goes to modern-day soybeans and and and, and common beans and uh, and cowpeas and and other legumes like that that went in a separate. So those are two different subgroups of the legumes. That event would have been 50 million years ago, and so they're busy evolving for tens of millions of years, and then something happened in the lineage that goes to that has that, that has evolved into present-day soybean, and this was about 12 million years ago. And what happened was a totally a second duplication event. So in soybean, when you look at the genes, there are numerous cases where you don't find one gene or two genes. You find four genes that are represented. And again, you would have had the same thing about many of the genes would have been lost after the fate of the genes would have been to be lost. But other ones would have become subfunctionalized. Others would have become neofunctionalized. So soybean, when you look at its genome, it has a very distinctive kind of pattern of gene numbers in, inside of it compared to other compared to other plants. By the way, that makes legumes a very good system for, that is, comparing soybean to metacago makes it a really good system for just looking at the history of, of genome duplication events. Now, just kind of broadening up a bit, how, how do we apply this knowledge to, to agriculture? You talk um, about conventional breeding that is smarter. So what do you mean by this, and what can uh, genome sequencing bring to, to this whole thing? The first observation that we made, that is understanding the, um, the fate of these duplicated genes and the role they play or they have played in nodulation, that actually um, made us think that looking at, looking at genome duplicated genes, you know, with our genome sequence type uh, tools that we have, um, meant that we could discover other genes. It would now be possible for us to use that as a tool to discover other genes that are important in nodulation and nitrogen fixation. And, and since that time, you know, since the, since the publication of this genome sequence, other papers have come out, and those, um, those manuscripts have discovered other genes that are essential or crucial for the process of nodulation. And so scientists are quite interested in getting an inventory or kind of a parts list for all the genes and all the gene, you know the proteins that are that are coded for by the genes a parts list for all the genes that are involved in nodulation and nitrogen fixation because while it's while it's a while it's a, a very uh, long range goal it would be a, a fantastic achievement to be able to adapt those legume based nitrogen fixation genes to other kinds of crops. This was a big deal uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. Well, how can we take nitrogen fixation and move it to something else? And I think one of the, one of the unfulfilled uh, promises of all that was that we could move like, nitrogen fixation to corn or to wheat or to you know, some very, very unusual crops, I mean very distant crops as natural fertilizers, and that hasn't worked out because there's just too many differences uh, um, biologically. But we've also come to understand that there's a very large group of, of, of plants that have kind of the ancient machinery that's needed for nodulation. They just haven't taken it as far as the legumes have. 
And so those other kinds of plants, and, and many of and they include important um, uh, food crops, you know, those, those, closer, those somewhat closer relatives of legumes, as we, as we start to reveal more of the key components of nodulation, it may be possible to, to use genetic engineering, for example, to get those, uh, these, these, these other kinds of non-nitrogen-fixing crops to make their own nitrogen, or their own biological nitrogen. That would be a big deal. That's the one kind of idea that we talked about when we when, when we when we were looking at nitrogen at, at the at the genome sequence and what it told us about nodulation. Then the then the second sort of angle or the second opportunity that you can start to think about is when you when you take your sequencing capabilities and you look not at different species but at different members of the same species. You start to get a, a handle, you start to get an idea of which versions of the genes, they're called alleles, which allele of the genes is better, is a relatively more productive or a relatively more sustainable or, um, you know, more efficient uh, version of the gene. And we're, we're currently involved in, a, in, a, in what's called the HapMap project to discover those kinds of uh, uh, variations that are that have favorable characteristics from a from a from an ecological or from an agricultural point of view, and then once we I, and so then when scientists discover which ones are those, which one which versions of the genes are the are the more are the more uh, desirable ones, we can use our sequencing technology. We can use what's called DNA markers that are derived from our sequences, and we can select for varieties. We can select for variants that have the good genes as opposed to the bad genes. So without any kind of genetic engineering, we can select which crops to keep or which versions of crops to keep and in the process uh, create new varieties that are that are that are better in agriculture. So I'm just going I'm just going to use your answer there and ask you about the Habmat project. Um you've you've been working on this for a few years now. When did it start and um what is its main goal? Okay, so the Habmat project um we, that's not a, a term that we invented. It actually came from human genetics. So when scientists look at uh, the DNA of different, the, the genomes, the DNA of different uh, individuals, everybody's got their own sort of like um, map, their own sort of uh, combination of different genes. They're different combinations of the versions of the genes they have. And so in people, we're interested in looking at do you have the right combination? Do you have Do you have a combination that has low blood pressure or high blood pressure? Do you have a combination that is likely to lead to uh, diabetes or or not to lead to diabetes? With plants, especially with legumes, we're interested in knowing which combinations of uh, genes are most likely to make you a good nitrogen fixing plant. So you can make lots of nitrogen. You can do it with uh, lots of different bacteria and lots of different soil conditions. So. Uh, for us, the HapMap project has been to look at Metacago, the same species we sequenced uh, over the last several years, and then resequence hundreds of different uh, um, uh, examples, a hundred of different Metacagos that come from all over. In, in this case, it's from North Africa and from uh, Southern Europe. We take those hundreds of different Metacagos, and then we sequence them, and we take, you know, so we've resequenced them hundreds of times. And we take that data and we're sort of looking for correlations between the DNA sequence data that we've collected and how good they are at nitrogen fixation. We've built a database that sort of says, okay, 
this gene, this version of this gene, is the one that is associated with the ability to be a great, great as a great symbiotic partner. And so we're we're gathering up that all that kind of information and and sort of identifying all the different points on the chromosome that are correlated with um, the ability to to be a good nitrogen fixer, to be a good nodulator. And and just as in humans, you could look at lots of different traits. You can look at high blood pressure or intelligence or um, um, uh, diabetes or the likelihood of getting some kind of cancer. Um, With plants, we can look at lots of different things. We can look at things other than just nitrogen fixation. In our case, we're also looking at the production of medically active compounds. So metacago and different legumes, they make these these, uh, medically desirable uh, chemicals that people think we could actually use, sort of introduce into the human diet, if we if we could get the plants to make more of it or make the right kind of it. So we can use our hat map to look for nitrogen fixation, or we can use our hat map to look at what sort of chemical pathways are turned on or off in the plant. That's that's really that's really fascinating. Um, I have one last question for you regarding the technology um, that is used for genome sequencing. How how has that evolved since you started working on all this? Okay, good question. Um, when people talk about the human genome sequence, of course, that was finished in, two, in 2000, 2001, so about 10 years ago. And, uh, and that was the kind of DNA sequencing technology that had been available uh, since, the, since the 70s, so for quite a long time, and it was all that was available to anyone. It was a very accurate but a very cumbersome way of sequencing. And our project began in 2000, 2004, um, we began by using that very, that relatively slow and but highly accurate uh, version of sequencing, and at that rate, it was going to take tens of years and millions and millions of dollars to finish anything, not just Metacago. Um, about four years ago, five years ago, um, scientists, uh, the the field of DNA sequencing went through a revolution, and we moved to a what's called a next generation or second generation of DNA sequencing, and what happened there was um, uh, technologists, a couple of different technologies were developed where you no longer had to do any cloning in order to sequence DNA. You could, you could use tricks that sort of eliminated the need for what would, the DNA cloning step. And so then you could do millions of, of, of sequence reactions at once. And so in a class that I teach, a freshman uh, class I teach about biotechnology, you know, we used to talk, we, in, in 1990, um, you could sequence about 5,000 base pairs in a day. And that's, 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 how, that's how much a scientist working really hard could do. And then by the year 2010, so just two years ago, you'd gone from 500 base pairs or maybe 1,000 base pairs to a billion base pairs. Wow. So how many orders of magnitude? That's like a million-fold increase. Wow, and how do you manage all this? Could do that much. Yeah, how how do you manage all this data? Well, my 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 lab and and labs like ours um, have become strongly dependent on high performance computing and the tools of data mining, and so a lot of labs, a lot of biology labs, um, you know, you're not even you're, you're you're rarely in the in the laboratory now anymore. You're mostly on a computer. And you're you're sort of uh, collecting or you're gathering all of this different kind of sequence-based information, 
and then you're using data mining tools to try and look for the interesting patterns. Like we're looking for the interesting patterns for ni nitrogen fixation and these these secondary chemicals that, that legumes make. So that's 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 the data mining we're looking for, DNA sequences that are related to these things, and that's 99% of that's done on a computer. Professor Young, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical life physical and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thank you for listening.